Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Vetsplanation Staff Edition. So we're going to talk about DKA today. So Alicia really wanted to hear about this, so we're going to talk about DKA now. Uh, so if you haven't already done so, go listen to our podcast we did with Dr. Z, who talked about diabetes prior to this. I think that'll give you a better understanding of DKA. I will give you just like a brief synopsis real quick, but um, definitely listen to her as well. So to start out with, let's talk about what DKA stands for. So it stands for diabetic ketoacidosis. That's big words, right? So we're going to break that down so we understand them a bit better. So an animal that is diabetic means that they don't have enough insulin or they have an insulin deficiency. Now, blood glucose is the same thing as saying blood sugar, essentially. When a person or an animal's blood sugar or blood glucose rises after they eat, naturally your body will produce something called insulin. Insulin is really important because it helps blood sugar or blood glucose get into the cells that you need in your body. So you can think of insulin as like the key for glucose. It cannot get into the cell unless it has the key to be able to get in. So it needs insulin in order to get into the cell. All cells need glucose. Literally every cell needs it in order to be able to work. So this is a really perfect pair having insulin and glucose together because it helps the cells to be able to function. Now, without insulin, blood sugar or blood glucose just floats around in the bloodstream with really nothing to do. So eventually, that glucose just overwhelms the kidneys and spills over into the urine. So in dogs and a good majority of cats with diabetes, we need to give them an injection of insulin because their body has stopped being able to produce it or is not making enough of it to be able to help blood glucose get into the cell. So like I said, Dr. Z has a much more in-depth on this. She talks about cats and interesting things with cats as well, how we should talk to them about certain diets. So I, I really highly suggest listening to hers as well. But at least that's a brief overview of what diabetes is. So let's talk about DKA now. So like I said, it stands for diabetic ketoacidosis. Now we know that it starts out with diabetes. So we now know what that first part is. It means we don't have enough insulin. So let's break down the ketoacidosis part. We'll start with that first part of keto. Everybody automatically thinks of the keto diet, but the keto diet was named after this process called ketosis that happens. Ketosis is where fat in the body is converted to something called a ketone body. Ketone bodies is sometimes used by the cells when they're desperately craving glucose, but they can't get it because there's no insulin to help them into the cell. So normally glucose or blood sugar is what we need in the cell to be able to produce energy. In diabetic patients, they may use ketone bodies as energy instead. Remember that insulin is like the key that glucose needs to be able to get into the cell, right? Now I'm talking about cells like inside the body, but what if I was talking about like a prison cell? So instead we have insulin is like the key that the guard has fits very nicely into each individual cell so that they can get into each cell to let specific prisoners out. It's all very orderly. Now, ketone bodies are like the rogue prisoners that are starting a riot. So they make a key out of soap. They let its buddies out. It starts smashing things. It just creates havoc. In more medical terms, ketone bodies is like not a clean energy source. You know, it makes all of these secondary problems with it getting into the cell. Versus blood glucose, which is going to go in, make very clean energy, and does not have a lot of byproducts to it. 
So when ketone bodies are used instead of glucose, we get an imbalance in our electrolytes and in our bloodstream, it makes it turn acidic. So like when you think about acidic or basic, it makes it turn very acidic. So then in more technical jargon, acidosis just means that it's acidic blood. So this turns into a huge disaster in the bloodstream because these patients, it just leads them to become very ill because they have all these byproducts breaking down, their electrolytes are out of whack, they're very dehydrated, and it creates lots of problems. So we've learned now about how like cells act normally with glucose and insulin, how diabetics cannot make enough insulin or do not have adequate enough amounts of insulin, and how the body uses these bad forms of energy called ketone bodies for energy. But that leads to havoc in our bloodstream called ketoacidosis. Right, so that's what our whole DKA or diabetic ketoacidosis means. We now don't have enough insulin, creating bad things in our body. Body's going crazy because we don't have electrolytes that are correct. Our, our, our blood is very acidic and they feel terrible. So like I said, these patients are very sick. At this point, that's when they feel pretty terrible. They're lethargic, meaning they're just not really moving around very much. They're depressed. They're dehydrated. They're vomiting. They're not eating. They're very nauseous. So based on what the pet parent sees at home, we kind of start putting these things together. A lot of times people will say that they were drinking lots of water beforehand or they're peeing a lot beforehand. And that's our first clue as to this might be diabetes when they say that they're drinking a lot and peeing a lot. So that's called PUPD. Polyuria is peeing a lot. Polydipsia, PD is drinking a lot. There are other things that can cause PUPD, but Diabetes is definitely on the top of that list. Like I said, they're usually complaining that they were drinking a lot beforehand. Now they're vomiting, can't keep anything down, even though they're drinking a ton. And now, like I said, they're not eating, they're very depressed. And we start thinking now about DKA because now they're a dog who was probably diabetic before. Nobody had caught it yet. And then now they are progressed past diabetes to DKA. And I'd say about like half of these patients had never been diagnosed with diabetes before, and the other half of them had a prior diagnosis of diabetes and have already been receiving insulin. So it doesn't necessarily mean that if the patient is on insulin, that they can't go into DKA. That is common as well. And that is very concerning for me when I see a dog up on the board for our triaging, when I see a diabetic patient that is vomiting. First thing I want to do is get blood work on them because I am very concerned that they are in DKA. So diabetes doesn't always necessarily go from diabetes to DKA though, but it usually means that there's something else that has caused some sort of inflammation or infection that has pushed them to use more ketone bodies because a lot of their glucose is going to the infection and not into the cells. So that if there's no infection or inflammation, or at least it's caught early in the diabetic patients, then they do not go into DKA, they just stay as diabetics. The most common thing that will cause some sort of inflammation in our dogs or infection in our diabetic dogs are going to be things like pancreatitis, which we've discussed before, urinary tract infections, and Cushing's disease. Cushing's disease is something that Dr. Z has, has talked to us about it before, so definitely go listen to that as well. In cats, the most common things are hepatic lipidosis, which I will definitely do in another podcast, uh, pancreatitis, and cholangiohepatitis which again, I will do in another podcast. So it just basically means that we have a problem with the gallbladder and the liver. 
right. So let's talk about like how we diagnose DKAs next. So blood work is the very best way to diagnose diabetes, DKA, and most of those underlying causes. In diabetes, we're looking for elevated blood glucose and usually glucose in the urine as well. Because remember I said it gets overwhelmed by the system. It spills over into the kidneys, which goes into the urine. So now we're looking for that, that ketoacidotic part. We do have two tests that you can use for, to check for ketones. One is going to be those strips that you use for the urinalysis. You'll see that one says ketones on it. You can use that for either serum or you can use that for urine to be able to tell you if there is ketones in the urine or in the serum. The second test is, it looks like the little blood glucose, the glucometers, but it's for ketones very specifically. And that is the most accurate one because it gives you a very good number, not a range. It gives you an exact number. So I highly recommend using that one, which does need blood. So technically the blood is going to be the most accurate because everything has to be filtered through the blood before it even gets to the kidneys to go into the urine. So the blood one is going to be the most accurate because then later it goes into the urine. The next thing we need is going to be blood gases. So if you see a pet who is diabetic and has ketones in its urine, you should automatically be drawing a green top tube to be able to do blood gases. Like no matter what, like it should be drawn because you want to make sure if the dog is acidotic or not. That is going to be a huge difference as to how long that patient is going to be there and also like how long they're going to need to be hydrated for. So check the blood gases and then the doctor will have to interpret that. I'm not going to go over how to check all the specifics for what's called metabolic acidosis, but just in general, if you look at the pH on it, the pH will be low because acid is low. So it's under seven and basic means over seven. So this will be under seven. Like I usually see them around like 7.05 essentially. And on there, I believe that our normal is like 7.5 or some, somewhere close to that. So they will be low. That's how you know that their blood is acidotic. And then we're going to be looking at other blood work as well, right? So make sure you draw for like pretty much everything. Uh, you want to make sure that you're going to be looking for things like a lot of times we'll do either looking at the blood work for their lipase or doing a CPL test to check for pancreatitis. We're going to be looking at their liver values to see if they might potentially have Cushing's. This does not diagnose Cushing's just on that blood work. We have to do additional blood work to diagnose Cushing's. We're going to be looking for hepatic lipidosis because we want to see for cats if they have a problem with their liver or cholangiohepatitis. So we're looking for their liver values. We also definitely need urine because we need to know if they have a urinary tract infection. Remember that all that blood glucose is spilling over into their bladder and bacteria loves sugar and it is going to go into that bladder to be able to use up all of that sugar. Sometimes we're going to be doing radiographs or an ultrasound because if we don't see anything else that's causing infection or inflammation, we're going to be looking for things like cancer because unfortunately those can be another underlying cause. So because the pet did already have diabetes prior to DKA, or had been known or not, we now have to fix the problem that caused the inflammation or infection, and we have to manage the diabetes. So when they are in DKA, they unfortunately have to be hospitalized. If they're not hospitalized and we just try medication at home, they only have about a 25% chance of survival, and that's pretty low. At this point, I do usually talk to people about the long-term management of it and then also hospitalization because not everybody's going to be able to do this. 
when they're hospitalized, they're hospitalized for five to six days on average. If they can't afford hospitalization, then this is maybe not a good option for them. And then also, if they don't think that they could do insulin injections, I've had definitely people who are like, my dog will bite me if I try to give it an insulin injection because they're just little terrors. Then we know that they just can't do that. They just, they're just not going to be able to get the insulin, and, but that pet's going to need it for the rest of their life. So at this point, I'm usually talking to them about, do you think you can do this? And if not, we need to start considering humane euthanasia because I don't want them to go home and suffer either. So if they're like, yes, we can do this. Our dog's super nice. They'll be great. We have the means to be able to hospitalize. Then that's what we're going to do next. We're going to hospitalize this patient. There are so many things that we have to now be watching for. So they are most likely going to need a central line. The central line is going to be the line. It's like an IV catheter that goes, usually we put it in the neck. You can put it into the limbs as well, but most likely the neck. And it's where we're drawing blood from it because we're going to be drawing their blood constantly. So they get a central line put in. And then the next thing they're usually going to get is an NG tube. So a nasogastric tube goes from the nose down into the stomach. That helps to feed them because we also need them to get adequate amounts of of all those nutrients that they need, minerals. We do need to have them have some blood sugar, but we'll definitely help them to start get their intestines moving so that they are more likely to eat faster. So any DKA patient should have those two things put in, a NG tube and a central line. Now we're going to be monitoring lots of things very closely. The first thing is that we're usually going to start rehydrating this patient. Most people think that we're going to do insulin first, and that is not the case. If we tried to get insulin first, what happens is, yes, the blood sugar will come down, but insulin is also needed for potassium. It is like the key to get potassium into the cell as well. If we have all this potassium that's floating around in the bloodstream, which is where it's needed, and we push potassium into the cells, then we're not going to have enough for all of the cells that we need it for. And it's going to have detrimental effects. It's going to make their blood more acidic. And it's also potentially going to make their heart stop because potassium is needed for the heart as well. Too much potassium makes the heart stop. Too little potassium makes the heart stop. So they have to have potassium as well. So we want to hydrate them first, not start insulin. When we're hydrating them, we're trying to rehydrate them for sometimes eight hours, sometimes 12 hours, sometimes 24, 48. We rehydrate them until they are actually rehydrated. We don't want them to be dehydrated when we start doing all the rest of our treatment. If so, again, that's going to cause detrimental effects. We're going to push them into having to be there longer and potentially not surviving if we do that. So we've got to make sure they're rehydrated first. We do our rehydration and then Next, we're also going to be looking at a lot of their electrolytes. We have to look at that potassium right away. So if any of the doctors ask you to start an insulin CRI or any insulin injections, if they are DKA, you should automatically ask them if we should put potassium in the bag. Like pretty much all dogs who are DKA, even though their blood work shows normal potassium, that potassium will plummet. They have to have potassium in their bag. When you start an insulin CRI, there should be potassium in that bag. I put it in even before they actually have the CRI started, so we already have it into their bloodstream. But like I said, just make sure you ask the, the doctor, whoever's starting it, do you want potassium in the IV fluids? Because otherwise, let's say you don't put potassium in the fluids, you don't check the potassium for 12 hours, 
And now that could be detrimental. It could go from that potassium being higher than normal, which is what you think it is, at five, and it could drop down to, to under two. And if it drops down to under two, I have to quickly bolus this potassium, which is something that could also kill the patient, right? So we have to be super, super careful. So make sure there's potassium in the bag. I know I keep saying that over and over again, but sometimes the doctors forget. So you got to make sure it's in the bag. Okay. I'll stop harping on that. Sorry. Next big things is that we also need to be checking for things like the phosphorus. The phosphorus can drop really fast as well. So we need to be checking that phosphorus. And then their blood sugars, right? We should be checking their blood sugars every two hours. This can be done either if they have the central line, that's going to be the most accurate for doing the blood sugar. Or if they have the little Libre, I call it a Nacho Libre, but it's the Freestyle Libre, they can, you can use that. Just with the Freestyle Libre, you have to know that it, that is about 20 minutes behind what your regular blood sugar is in your blood. People get worried because they're like, it, they just ate and I just took their blood sugar and it's, it says it is too low. But that's not necessarily the case just in the blood. It's going to be different than what it's in subcutaneous area, which is where that's actually drawing the blood from. So I'm not too worried when people are like, oh, it's too high. I'm more worried when it says it's too low because that's going to be a problem from knowing how low it actually is. So one of those two ways to be able to check their blood sugar every two hours, and then we adjust everything from there. So when we're doing our insulin, we're typically starting them on an insulin CRI which means a continuous rate infusion, meaning that we're giving it constantly. So you put insulin into a small bag of fluids, and then we are changing the rate of it every two hours based on what that blood glucose is. If it's too high, we're increasing the insulin. If it's too low, we're decreasing the insulin. And that's going to help push the potassium into the cells slowly. It's also going to help the blood sugar come down slowly so we can try to adjust everything uh, with as much ease as possible. There is also a way to do it where you give regular insulin injections. So when you use the Humulin R, that's a very short-acting insulin. So you can give that in order to be able to try to bring down the blood glucose as well. You give that every two hours to try to bring that down. I think that's just hard because then you have to give it constantly and that's, that's not great. I just hate poking them over and over and over again. But, it, but that is a possibility of doing that as well is to give it just as injections. And then... The next big things is going to be just trying to get their blood sugar manageable and getting them to the point to where they can eat. Once they're able to eat, that's when we're going to start being able to give them the longer ins acting insulin. Those are the ones that last for 12 hours at a time. And those are the ones that the owners are going to be able to do at home. So again, we're going to be monitoring things like our hydration, potassium, glucose, blood acidity, ketones, and phosphorus all very closely. So these guys are very, very critical. Like when we have these DKA patients in there, we have to adjust things constantly and we need all of the um, techs to be able to like really monitor these guys closely and tell us when anything is wrong. Because I might not be looking at the clock every two hours to look to see where that blood glucose is. And there is a forum on each one of them that shows like how to adjust the insulin for each one of them. But anytime you have to adjust something or if you're worried about something on that patient, Definitely ask us about it because again, like these guys are so critical. All right. So like I said, once these guys are eating to the point we can give them the long lasting insulin, we take them off of the insulin CRI and give them their long lasting insulin. Then we keep them in the hospital for just 
usually one to two more shifts to make sure that they're able to hold their blood glucoses still high. If they're higher than normal, then I'm okay with that. I'm probably not going to do a lot of adjusting on that insulin. But if they are lower than normal, then I'm really concerned about that because then we're too high of an insulin injection. So we're going to be monitoring that to make sure that they do okay just on the insulin injections they're going to give at home. Now, the next part is when they get checked out, right? They're eating, they're doing great. We're going to check them out at this point. They get their NG tube removed, they get their central line removed. And then now we have to talk about how to give the insulin with the owners. Some of the big things are going to be that they need to keep the insulin refrigerated. They also need to roll the insulin to make sure that it all gets mixed up. You don't shake it and actually breaks up a lot of the molecules that just needs to be rolled. And most of the time that's said on the bottle when they get the insulin. And then we need to show them how to draw up the insulin. Now, there are multiple different types of insulin, right? For cats, the most common one you're going to see is glargine. It's great for them because they can potentially go into remission of diabetes with them. Dogs usually cannot go into remission, but cats can. So glargine is a great one for helping them try to get back into remission. And by that, I mean that they can come off of the insulin. For dogs, typically, it's either going to be vetsulin or NPH are the most common ones used. And now there are two types of syringes, so we have to like really know which one we need to use. Most of the time on the bottle, it'll tell you which insulin syringe to use. There's either U40s or there's U100s. But the big difference is that they're two different concentrations, and, and you could majorly overdose a dog by giving them the wrong insulin syringes. So make sure we have the right insulin syringes. Vetsulin and Prozinc are usually using U40s, and Glargine and NPH use U100s. They get the insulin usually twice a day, and it's very important to make sure that they're eating before the owner gives the insulin. So they need to give them some sort of meal. Ideally, they just feed them twice a day, which I know that's easier for dogs than it is cats. Ideally, they're giving them something to make sure that they have eaten, even if it's just a snack of wet food. And then give the insulin injection so that they know that the patient is actually eating. If they are not eating, I usually will tell pet parents to give only half of the dose of insulin for that first time. If they are still not eating by that night, they need to come in. That's too much time. They should have already been eating by then. So don't give them the insulin. Bring them back in. And then after that, it's just talking to them about what they need to do next. Next, we need to make sure that they are following up with their regular veterinarian, whether it's us or somebody else, to make sure that we are giving them the adequate amount of insulin. So usually they'll go talk to the regular veterinarian who will tell them what kind of testing they want to do. There are lots of different testing for diabetic patients. Some people prefer to do fructosamine. Fructosamine is a test that's used to check to see if their blood glucose has been high over a two-week time period. They could use um, glucose curbs, which means they stay in the hospital for 8 to 12-ish hours, depending. They give them an insulin injection, give them food, and then we're checking the blood glucose over that period of time to see what their blood glucose is at those times. And making sure they don't go too high and that they don't go too low. And some vets also just go off of their clinical signs. If their clinical signs have resolved, then a lot of times they're not going to do anything to adjust their insulin. So it really just depends. And that's why they should do further discussion with their regular vet to determine what the next steps are going to be for their follow-up care. All right, let's talk about prognosis now. So like I said, this is unfortunately a very life-threatening condition. Uh, we talked about they need extensive round-the-clock care. 
isn't going to be something that they get diagnosed at their regular event and then they just go home. They're probably going to have to be transferred to be able to be properly cared for in an ICU type environment. We talked about the chances of them going home and being able to be treated and surviving is only about 25%, which is just not good odds. With hospitalization, about 70% of them will leave the hospital. Still not great. That's not 100%, but that is much better than 25%. And there are some dogs that might not have gotten to that acidic portion yet, that their blood is a normal pH, but they still have diabetes and they still have ketones in their bloodstream. We call those diabetic ketosis or diabetic ketotic patients. They have a much better prognosis as long as they don't progress to that DKA stage. If they're only the diabetic ketosis patients, I've had like at least 99% of them leave the hospital. But when they get to that TKA portion, now, now their chances go drop back down to about 70% of them that will leave the hospital. All right, a couple of odd things that can happen. Uh, Dr. Z had talked about this, but with cats who have diabetes and are on a medication called BexiCat, that is extremely important to know because if they're sick, their blood glucose will still be normal. Because that's what BexiCat does is it makes their blood glucose normal and it pushes it all out into the urine. So because of that, their gl blood glucose will look normal, but they'll have high, really high ketones in their bloodstream. And they're also going to be really acidic. So they're still DKA patients and they are going to have to be managed a little bit differently because we have to add dextrose to their fluids as well as using regular insulin. So it becomes a huge balancing act trying to keep them normal. But that is something that we have to worry about is these Bexicat cats with their blood glucose being normal. And then after that, if they do go into DKA, they can no longer have Bexicat. They unfortunately have to go on insulin after that. There's also this other weird thing that can happen. It's called hyperlipidosis. Hyper meaning above or above normal. Lipid means fat. And then osis means in the bloodstream. So basically they have too much fat circulating in the bloodstream. Some people will more likely know lipids as things like cholesterol and triglycerides, essentially. So now pets can have this problem, this hyperlipidosis problem, and never have a problem with it. It's just something that they're inherently born with, no big deal. But it can cause a lot of other problems. So it can cause pancreatitis, which we've talked about before. It can also be a consequence of other diseases like diabetes, hypothyroidism, and Cushing's disease. Uh, it can also occur from just like too many fatty table scraps. So the most common dogs that get this are going to be miniature schnauzers, beagles, shelties, rough collies, and poodles. This really complicates DKAs. The blood, unfortunately, there's no quick fix for it. The only way to fix this is by putting them on a low-fat diet and having them lose weight. The blood is not going to become less fatty in six days being in the hospital. It's going to take time. And so that patient doesn't have time when they're in DKA, which means that prognosis is worse if they've gotten to the point of DKA. Because of this, unfortunately, they have a worse prognosis if they do go into DKA with hyperlipidosis. I, I have not had very many of them that have left the hospital, fortunately. So things to do for the owners when you especially we have one of these types of breeds or if they like talk about how they feed table scraps a lot is to talk about how they shouldn't do that because it could make DKA much worse. Stop giving them table scraps and then bring them down to a healthy weight. Now, you might also be thinking about what about the things that people use to bring down their lipids. Niacin is one of those things. 
But unfortunately, with dogs, it causes too many side effects that can cause cataracts, it can cause all sorts of other things, vomiting, lots of things with them. One safe thing that they can use to try to help bring down lipids at least a little bit is fish oil. It's not going to do it quickly and it's not going to bring it down to normal, but it's like I said, it's something that can help with that. All right, guys, that is DKA in a nutshell. So 30 minutes, that's not too bad for DKA. All right, my fun fact for you for today is I was going to talk about some of these strange animals that I've had when I was little. I was thinking about this. I I had an affinity for helping animals, like I said, just since I was little. Oh, ever since I can remember, I've been like getting weird animals, helping them, trying to make them better. So I had things like chipmunks. I had a I had kangaroo rats for a while. I would have lizards all the time, like random wild California lizards. We called them alligator lizards. I had a chicken, a pet, like a pet chicken, like he lived in my room type chicken. My mom one day had, I think that I had mentioned this story before. I can't remember, but my mom would never go in my room because of the fact that I just had all these animals in there. She would, she, this is when we had pagers. She paged me one day and then I called her back and I was like, what's that mom? And she says, do you know that there's a chicken in your room? Like there's a chicken in your room. I was like, yeah, he's been there for a while, like a couple weeks at this point. What, what's the problem? And she just told me. But I was trying to fix him because he was a chicken for my work that all the other chickens died after they vomited. And so I took him home to try to see if I could like help fix him. And I did. And he did great. And he went back to my work. But he was there for a month, I think, before he went back to work. Just like in my room, hung, hanging out. It's not like I had a pin or anything for him. He just hung out in my room. What else? There's been, I've had the ducks. I've had a hedgehog. I've had a chameleon. My chameleon was by far my favorite animal. And then, but he's very high maintenance. I had to do so much work to keep his, his um, temperature correct and his humidity correct. And he also had kidney disease. So he was born inside of, he was hatched inside of a crate that came over from Madagascar. And so he had really bad kidney disease because he wasn't exposed to enough vitamin D when he was little. So we had to do, I had to do a lot to make sure that to keep his moisture and everything correct. And they typically live about three years um, and he lived for two and a half years, I think. So with kidney disease, that was really good. I was pretty impressed with that. Uh, but he was, like I said, by far my favorite, even though he was so, so much work. Um, I really enjoyed him. And then hedgehog is definitely my least favorite of all the animals because they just don't like to be touched. And what else? have a leopard gecko now. She's very nice. I always tell people if you want to start with a easy to maintain animal or reptile, a leopard gecko is great. Leopard geckos and bearded dragons. I've also had a bearded dragon with my wife. And let's see, what else? Poisonous dart frog. I've had one of those. I've had, oh gosh, I can't even remember. This different kind of frog that I had as well, but it's this frog that only lives in the water that swims, but I can't remember what it's called. But some small frog as well, small aquatic frog. And then dogs and cats and stuff as usual. The ducks, the chickens, things like that. But somebody had asked me the other day, what was the weirdest animal you've ever had? And I'd say things like the kangaroo rat or the chipmunks. Those were definitely odd. I had a praying mantis at one point. My dad had brought it home from the desert. And back then they were actually, you weren't allowed to do that. You weren't allowed to bring them home. But 
he brought one home and then my mom sprayed it with Raid because she didn't know what it was. And then so I had to wash this praying mantis off to get all the chemicals and stuff off of him. And he didn't do very well at first, but then like he lived after that and he did really good. So yeah, so just just fun facts about me. There you go. All right, guys, as always, if you have any questions about DKA, you know, message me, email me, find me in the hallways, whatever. I'm always happy to answer your questions and help you guys out, okay? All right, thanks, guys.